Thank you, Peter. Thank you to our worship team again. It's great to see uh, Martin joining us. It's uh, fantastic. Thank you, Martin. And um, yeah, it's just it's just fantastic to uh, to see that final song, Peter, that uh, we just went through. Um, My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O oh, my soul. Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. Because of this, we can truly say it is well with my soul. Beautiful words from the hymn writer there. We'll continue our time of worship now as we open up the Word of God. And this morning, we'll continue our series once again in Titus. So I invite for you to turn with me there to Titus chapter 2. And we'll be reading from here shortly. But first, just looking back over the past few sermons, what we have learnt so far from the book of Titus. Titus, as you may remember, is all about the demonstration of good works founded in the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Titus is about the demonstration of good works founded in the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about a saving God who has saved His people and He saved His people in order that they might too display His saving power to the world and thus glorifying God and drawing others to Him. If you read the book of Titus as a whole, it's not hard to, to pick up on this idea. With the exception of the, the first two verses, everywhere else, Christ is always pictured as Saviour. Verse 3, God our Saviour. Verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Chapter 2, verse 10, showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrines of God our Saviour in every respect. And on and on we could go. But all this to say... That God is a saving God. God is a saving God who saves sinners. This is the simple message of Christianity. God saves men from sin. That is the Christian's message. That is our message. That is the message of the church and has been so throughout all church history. God saves sinners. Jesus came and the angel, the angel gave him his name Jesus because... Matthew 21, he will save his people from their sins. John 3.16 we know so well, but John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. 1 Timothy 1.15, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. On and on we could go, but all this to say that our God is a saving God. This is our message. This is the message that we are to share. This is the message that God wants us to display in our lives. God desires to display His glory by saving sinners from their sin. It is only through the marvellous work of Jesus Christ on the cross He takes our sin upon His shoulders. He pays the full cost of redemption. Positionally, He makes us righteous, having imputed His righteousness upon us. 
2 Corinthians 5 tells us, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. But the message doesn't just stop there. God, who, God is a God who saves, yes, but He is also a God who continues to work, continues to transform the believer's life. Through the power of Christ in us and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by way of sanctification, God transforms us into His likeness. And this transformation is where God displays His saving power to the world. Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove, you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable. We are saved not so that we remain in our sinful state, but so that we can be transformed into Christ's likeness. If anyone is a new, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old one has passed away, the new has come. Second Corinthians five again. Romans six four. We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's why it's so important for us to walk in that newness of life, so that we might demonstrate God's saving power to this world. When we demonstrate God's saving power, the rest of the world can see exactly what a saved sinner looks like. Nothing displays God's glory like the amazing, miraculous work of redemption in an unbeliever's heart. There is nothing like bringing the unworthy sinner to righteousness and seeing the change that has taken place in their lives. Nothing displays His glory like this incredible miracle. God communicates that He is a saving God by demonstrating His saving power through saved people. Now, if saved people don't act like, being, like saved people, then God's message isn't getting across and is not being displayed. The Christian, involve, the Christian walk involves more than just saying that you're changed and speaking the truth of the Bible. Obviously, it's true we have to speak the truth. We can't be saved without hearing the word of truth, Romans 10. But as one commentator says, getting someone to listen to the truth is dependent upon the demonstration of its power that they have observed in the life of others. God saves us to make us holy. This is so others can see the transformed life that God has produced and come to Him for the same transformation. And that's precisely the point of our text that we have before us this morning. With that in mind, let us pick up in Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Titus 2. Verse 11, the Word of God says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. One of the great preachers of the modern age, Charles Spurgeon, said, Praise the Lord, 
for his speaking such gracious words to our soul when he was going through the book of Titus. Jerry Bridges, regarding these verses, says, Grace expresses two complementary thoughts. God's unmerited favor towards us through Christ and God's divine assistance to us through the power of Christ. Both we see here in these verses. And John MacArthur says, The beauty of the entire redemptive story we see here in just these few short verses. Up until this point in the book of Titus, we've seen practical instruction. We've seen again and again the commandments of God on how to live to reflect that we've been saved. The adorning of the doctrines of God. But now come to the end of chapter 2, we have the doctrinal foundation for those commands. In fact, it's just something for us to keep in mind whenever we read the books of Paul. Never does he give a commandment, never does he give a moral command without giving a doctrinal foundation for that command. And that's what we have here before us this morning. The doctrinal foundation for the commands that we've seen in these previous verses. Look at me at the last part of of verse 14 for a moment. The foundation for all Christian conduct is that God has saved us to be zealous for good deeds. That is so that we... This is so that, as we've said, we display God's glory and that we can be used to lead others to Him. All the transformed living of verses 1 through 10 is produced by the saving work described in verses 11 through 14. God transforms to display His power so that others too might be saved. And this is really the whole redemptive story in these verses. Paul begins... For the grace of God has appeared. The four transitioning from what was previously said, the grace of God has appeared. Now, most of us would have a pretty good idea of, of what grace is, but I always find it helpful for our own recall just to recap over these things. Grace, essentially, is God's unmerited favor towards wicked, unworthy sinners by which he delivers them from sin's from, from their sin and from its penalty. God's, God's grace is God's free, complimentary, unmerited goodness by which he blesses sinners for all eternity. That's what grace means. Every aspect of our salvation is centered on grace. We sing the song Amazing Grace, but we could also sing the song Saving Grace. Ephesians 2, which Peter read to us before in our time of worship, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. Paul here is not just intending us to understand grace as an attribute of God, but here in this verse he personifies grace. The grace of God has appeared, has become visible, it has broken forth. And who is the fulfillment of that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says the grace of God has appeared, he's talking about the incarnation. The grace of a God appeared suddenly. It appeared visibly 2,000 years ago in a Bethlehem manger. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the personification of the grace of God. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. So grace appeared in a unique and definitive way through the incarnation and the atoning work of Christ. Paul refers to it again later in the book of Titus in in chapter 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. And so that leads us to ask the question then, what does saving grace do? Sorry, I should have my PowerPoints up and running. Oh, thanks, Beck. Beauty. What does saving grace do? What does saving grace do for us today? This morning as we go through our text, we will see that saving grace does four things for us. Four things, all of which so that we may be able to honour the gospel through our godly living. So that we may be what it says at the end of verse 14, zealous for good deeds, displaying the saving power and the transforming power of God in our lives. We want grace to be displayed, right? Ask yourselves, how do we show God's grace through our life, whether it be in our home, in our marriages, in our workplace, or even in this church? God doesn't just give grace for us to keep it to ourselves. We are to display God's grace to the world around us. Looking just firstly at verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. We see in this verse the fact that God, through the person of Jesus Christ, has justified us. Saving grace justifies us as believers. When we're talking about justification, what are we talking about? Justification is a legal term, a legal uh, term that Paul uses, meaning to declare righteous. It's a legal act by where God pronounces that the believing sinner has been credited with all the virtues of Jesus Christ. Whereas forgiveness is the negative aspect of salvation, meaning the retraction of human sin, the positive aspect is the addition of divine righteousness. This is justification. Think about the debit and the credit ledger of your bank account. It's the same idea. Verse 11, the appearing of grace, what? Brings salvation. The word here for salvation, soterios in the Greek, means to be delivered, or it means to be rescued. Saving grace has come to rescue us. But rescue us from what? Well, for a start, to be rescued implies that, firstly, we are in danger. We are in danger and we desperately need rescuing. It's the idea, in the same way that a person is trapped in a burning house, they are in perilous danger and they need to be rescued. This is the danger. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as one man, through one man, sin entered into this world, death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. By nature, we are totally depraved. That is, we are completely lost 
and dead to God. We need to be rescued from this spiritual position that will ultimately have physical and eternal consequences for us. Hence the need of our rescue. The reality of the situation is this. We are born into this world sinners, utterly depraved, totally lost, and in desperate need of rescue. Saving grace is that rescue. The Lord Jesus Christ, through His death, paid in full the penalty of that, of our sin, that would otherwise have been upon our own shoulders. The atoning blood of Christ covered my sin, it covered your sin, and it covered all the Father, all the sins of the, all the sins of the people that the Father would divinely call to Himself. He justifies us through saving grace. He is a saving God. He declares us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This fact alone should be enough for us to fall in worship. The eternal God stepping into time, Philippians 2.8 tells us, being found in the appearance of a man, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the eternal God of whom we speak. How incredible is it that He would die paying the price for my sins, declaring me righteous before God the Father. As well as justification, we have so many other rich theological implications that we have from this verse. Firstly, the fact that we need rescuing implies that we cannot save ourselves. Thus, God instigates the rescue by choosing us from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, to respond to the gospel in faith. This is divine election. Secondly, the second implication, the fact that the appearing of the grace of God is able to rescue us, that rescuer has to be God himself. Otherwise, no other sacrifice could fully rescue us. The lordship of Jesus Christ is what we're talking about here. And on and on we could go. There are so many other implications. However, I will just mention briefly the final two words that Paul says here. In verse 11, he says, He is bringing salvation to all men. Many a time, the words of, of this verse have been used to try and prove the idea of, of universal salvation. The idea that everyone gets saved because of the all men. But no matter where we would sit theologically, we know that this is not going to happen. All men will not be saved. The all men here, in its context, context is always key, the all men refers to all kinds of men, or all classes of men or people in the world. Just as we have different kinds of people in this church, and different people mentioned in the previous verses. We have slaves, the older, the younger, etc. The grace of God has appeared to each one. God brings salvation to all classes of men. And in addition to this connection with the context, the term all men is further defined by its connection with the us in verse 12 and verse 14. Instructing us and redeeming us, a people, for his own possession. In other words, the us there referring to believers. God's grace has appeared 
and has rescued believers through faith. The fact that we are justified is praiseworthy material, right? This is enough for us to be eternally thankful for what Christ has done and that by His grace alone, through faith alone, He has rescued us. Thus, we need to seek to honour Him in return by our godly living and our service to Him. Secondly, not only does saving grace justify us by delivering us from the penalty of sin, not only does it justify us, but we can see in verse 12 that it also sanctifies us. Saving grace delivers us from the power of sin over our lives. Whereas justification is the idea of a one-time deal, the work of sanctification is an ongoing thing from the moment you believe to the moment you are called to be with Christ in the air or that we would pass on from this world. Sanctification is the progressive growing in Christ-likeness. Verse 12, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. Not only is saving grace personified as our rescuer in verse 11, in verse 12 it is personified as our teacher. Saving grace becomes our teacher. From the moment of our coming to saving faith, we are getting constant instruction that is coming from within us. Instruction about righteousness and godliness. Saving grace breaks sin's dominion and it breaks sin's power in our lives. The examples of this are many throughout the scriptures. Romans 6, 14, sin no longer has mastery over us. It no longer dominates us. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 6, Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the, fe- in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, as Peter read before, this is my favourite. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For we as his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The Lord Jesus Christ, after saving us, breaking the, power, breaking the penalty of sin in our lives, He now transforms us. Sin no longer is, our, is the dominant force, but the very thought of sin in our lives should disgust us and move us to repentance. No longer is sin our master, but now we have the power of Christ in our lives. The power of Christ enables us to overcome sin and temptation and live godly lives before the world, thus displaying the transforming power of God. All true believers are born of God. They have a new life, a new nature. The believer is a new creation. The dominion of sin is broken and no longer does the believer continually, habitually, 
in an uninterrupted and unbroken pattern, continue to practice sin. This is very basic to the Christian life. The evidence that someone is truly saved is through his walk of sanctification. And the idea of justification and sanctification go hand in hand, might I add. One cannot be without the other. Without justification, there is no basis for sanctification. And likewise, without sanctification, there is no evidence for justification. I was talking about this with Jeff yesterday. I don't know very much about riding horses. The one time I did ride a horse, it was in New Zealand with Nia. And it was, without a doubt, the scariest thing I have ever done. And one of the most painful things that I have ever done. But I remember having an interesting conversation with uh, the owner of of, uh, the place that we were at about the breaking in of horses. When a horse is broken, when a horse is broken in initially, one moment they are wild, they are bucking, they are rebellious beasts, unwilling to yield to any master that should put their hand to it. But in a matter of minutes, when the breaking has taken place, No longer is that horse like it was, but it is now a submissive animal that yields to the guidance of its rider or of its master. And this is a picture of the the Christian when we are saved or rescued. One moment we are wild, rebellious and rebellious. The next, with our new heart, we will gladly submit ourselves to the guidance of our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6.1. He describes the problem. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If someone is justified through the power of Christ and the indwelling spirit, they will move away from sin and towards righteousness. This is the process of Sanctification. You want to see a strong Christian. A strong Christian is one who is in constant daily confession, seeking to put off this body of sin and put on righteousness. Verse 12 for us looks at both the positive and the negative aspect of sanctification. Saving grace teaches us to deny some things and to affirm others. And like the wardrobe analogy, the wardrobe analogy that Paul illustrates in the book of Colossians, we are, there are certain clothes that we are to put off and certain clothes that we must put on because we really don't want to be naked. For example, in our text, we are to put off ungodliness. We are to put off worldly desires. And I can't stress enough, there is an unmistakable change that takes place in the believer's life in the moment they come to saving faith. When the regenerate man and the unregenerate man's lives are placed side by side, there is a stark difference between the two. One will delight in ungodliness and the other will detest it. This is not to say that the believer will not be faced with temptation of ungodliness and worldly things. Temptation is ever before us because Satan is at work in this world. But as we have for us the encouragement of 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, No temptation has overcome you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, but with the temptation will prove a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. 
Temptation is there, yes. But because of the transformation that has taken place, because of the power of Christ in our lives, and because of the, because of the prompting of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can make a decision against that temptation. Will there be times that we give in? Absolutely. But when we do, when we give in, it will grieve us so much that we will confess and seek repentance before the Father. The believer's life must be marked by a denial of ungodliness and worldly desires. The positive aspect of sanctification or is where we put on the right clothes, as, as Paul was saying in, in Colossians. We are to be putting on the idea of living sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. Three things that Paul mentions here are the evidence of a transformed life. Firstly, we are to put on sensibility, which is the idea of having self-control or self-mastery, having balance. No longer are our desires under the... uh, No longer for us... Sorry. For us to get our longings and our desires under control to harness them so as to develop discernment and sound judgment. And thinking about the idea of of self-control, I can't help but go back to Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? He keeps it according to your word. So the call here for us is to be sensible, it is to be self-controlled, and that doesn't come from some innate sense, but rather it comes from the word of God itself. If we are not studying it, if we are not reading it, then our ability to be in control is severely compromised. Self-control is a key component to our sanctification. It doesn't just happen overnight, but from the moment of our salvation, there will be a desire to move towards self-control rather than to give into it. Secondly, we are called to live righteously. We are to obey the divine standard of what is right. No longer do we live to the standard of the world, but now we live to a higher standard, to a divine standard. The divine standard does not come naturally to us, but it has to be cultivated through careful study and reading of the Word of God. And thirdly, we have to live godly lives. As one commentator puts it, to live a godly life, you become reverent, you become respectful of God, you honor God, you worship, you adore you praise and you live under His authority. Saving grace sanctifies us. It teaches us. Saving grace transforms us into Christ's likeness so as to display God's transforming power to the world. Let's examine our lives for one moment here. I ask, is there evidence of a transformation in your life? Is there evidence of moving away from sin? and moving towards godliness. If you examine and you can see a life marked by sin rather than holiness, then perhaps you need to look at whether or not you are truly justified. It's a serious thing. It has eternal consequences. There's either condemnation or heavenly rejoicing, and there is no middle ground. If there is, a, is, there, if there is evidence of a transformed life, then praise God. 
but we still need to ask the question, how are we cultivating that transformed life? How is a sanctification walk for you? Is it grounded daily in God's word and prayerful confession before him? If not, then please make it so. Thirdly, we see saving grace has justified us, saving grace continues to sanctify us, teaching us. And thirdly, saving grace gives us the hope of glorification. See this threefold process coming here? Saving grace has justified us in the past. Jesus continues to sanctify us in the present. And Jesus gives us hope of one day being rid of this body of sin through glorification in the future, past, present, and future. You see this in verse 13, where it says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Christ Jesus. When we talk about glorification, we're talking about a time when Jesus Christ will return. As Peter prayed before, we, we look forward to that day. We long for that day. When he returns, we will be delivered from the presence of our sin in our glorified form. Verse 11 has the word appeared, referring to Christ's first coming. Here in verse 13, the word appearing, it has not yet happened. This was Christ's second coming. So what is the verse saying here? It's saying that we have a hope. We are to live in expectation that Jesus is coming. And when he comes, we will be taken away. We will be delivered from our sinful bodies and from the presence of sin and be given bodies in the glorified form. That's why Paul can say elsewhere, Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In other words, to live on this earth shows off the power of a saving God, but to die, to be removed from this mortal body of sin, is far, far greater. That was the great hope for Paul and should be our cry also. What does this mean for us? Well, the implication for us is that we need to live a life removed. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of a humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Romans 13:11 For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Salvation what is Paul talking about here? Salvation is nearer. Well, we believe that salvation isn't talking Sorry. For our salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Our home is ultimately in heaven, Our hope is being removed from this body of sin and entering in our glorified form with Jesus. Our lives need to start reflecting this way of thinking. This means that we are to value what truly matters in our lives. That is godly living that demonstrates the transforming and saving power of God. Earthly possessions or futile excursions, they become secondary goals to this. We need to examine our lives, check our priorities and ensure that they align with what we are ultimately hoping 
4. Finally, saving grace justifies, saving grace sanctifies, it glorifies us. And finally, we come to our final verse, verse 14. We see that saving grace gives us eternal security. Verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, that they might be zealous for good deeds. What is the issue at hand here? Well, we're talking about the idea of possession. Either we are a possession, as an unbeliever, we are a possession of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, or we are a possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're either a possession of sin or a possession of righteousness. There is no middle ground. Paul explains how this possession of Jesus Christ takes place. He said, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people. This is the core message of the gospel again summed up. God is a saving and a transforming God. He is a God who has sent his son to step out of eternity, humble himself as a man that he could fully sympathize with us, live the perfect and holy life that only he could live, go to Calvary with the weight of sin upon his shoulders, die a substitute death for his people, rise again giving eternal life and now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, continuing to transform the lives of his people into his likeness. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 1 verse 4, He gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present age according to the will of God our Father. He gave himself willingly to obey the Father. He gave himself to redeem us, to pay the price of every lawless deed. An incredible statement that Paul is making. As one commentator says, He saved us not only to keep us out of hell, not only to break sin's power over us and someday the presence of sin, but to take us out of the possession of slavery and make us slaves of righteousness so that we begin to live a life of purity that we may, as we maintain God's law. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. He purifies us and transforms us as a people for his possession. The believer is a possession of Jesus Christ. And the idea of a possession here is, is, is having a great treasure. It is the great treasure of Jesus Christ. Now, as a possession, if you had something of unimaginable value, would you ever let it go? We become his, he holds us. You can go all through the scripture and read this. We are hid with Christ in God. No man is able to pluck us out of his hands. Nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We are forever secure. This is an essential component of salvation. We have salvation that delivers us from the possession of sin permanently into the possession of righteousness. Saving grace breaks that ownership and delivers us. We cannot go back. The Lord has paid the price and the justice of God is satisfied on our behalf. 
He is our owner. He is our God. He saves us so that we might be zealous for good deeds, so that we might display His power, His transforming power. Now people, because every true believer is rescued, every true believer is taught, every true believer looks forward and is secure in saving grace, how are we going to respond? I trust that if need be, it will be in repentance, but ultimately for us it will be in worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the richness of your word, Lord, which speaks life into our hearts. Lord, the grace of God appearing through the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us and continues to work in our hearts, Lord. May we be lights for you in this world, Lord, as we live for your glory. We ask these things in your precious name now, Lord Jesus. Amen. Stand for our benediction this morning with me, please, from from Hebrews 13. The Word of God says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.